We echo with that song, Alleluia, what a Savior. And with the angels who say, for unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, who came to save, seek, and save the lost. Lord, I pray for those of us here who have been rescued, that our lives would be marked with affection for Jesus and a desire to celebrate day after day after day in worship to our great King and Savior, Jesus. And Lord, to those this morning who do not know you as their Savior, please, by your power, draw them to yourself. May they have the wonderful experience of faith and grace through Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. What a great time of year this is. A reminder as Jesus has come of many of the things that we know about Jesus as God. And I wonder this morning, if you were to pinpoint an attribute of God that just stands out to you as a result of maybe the, this, this holiday season, the coming of Jesus Christ, what, what attribute would you direct your attention to? What, what attribute of, of God do you orient your heart around and encourage you, encourages you and, and brings you a sense of wonder at the majesty and glory of who God is? Maybe this morning you would pinpoint the love of God. Certainly the love of God was evident in the presence of his son, Jesus Christ. We know John 3:16 that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This morning, Jesus came to make a way, to make a way that's possible for you to enjoy him through faith by believing that Jesus is everything that the Bible says he is, that he came to draw you in to salvation, into relationship, to deliver you from your sins. Maybe this morning you would think about the love of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Maybe, of course, you would think about the mercy of God that is so prevalent through the, the time of Jesus' coming, his coming as an evidence of mercy. Ephesians chapter two, I was gonna focus on verses four and five, but, but unless you have the context, you can't really appreciate the, the but God that comes in verse four. It says, in you he made alive, here is our description. We were dead in trespasses and sins in which we once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, here it is, children of wrath, just as the others. That's what we deserve. Verse four the mercy of God enters the scene. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love 
with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Have you experienced the mercy of God, the love of God that comes through the grace of God that he gives to us? The gift of faith, the grace of God to us, the mercy that we experience because of the coming of Jesus. Maybe you would point to the presence of God. Of course, we think about Emmanuel, God with us, but as Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 want us to understand that we can experience the ongoing ministry of the presence of God. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Because of the presence of God, because of the the coming of Christ, and the, the presence through his Holy Spirit, we can experience the help of God through his his presence with us. Maybe through the Christmas season you might say, I cherish the presence of God. Emmanuel, God made flesh who dwelt among us. Maybe you would point to the righteous power of God as seen in Ephesians chapter three, verses 20 to 21. We can pray confidently and we can pray with expectation because to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Christ's coming made possible for us to see and experience the power of God working in this world, to overcome sin, to overcome death, to lead us to transformation, to lead us into relationship, to make a way through his son, Jesus. Maybe you would point to the holiness of God or the glory of God or the worthiness of God, all found in Revelation chapter Chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Or it says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. The worship that God is due, the worship that he is experiencing by the angels in heaven is a worship that we as saints will come to give him forever and ever in the presence of God because of his holiness, because of his worthiness, because of his power. But I wonder this morning if you've ever marveled at the humility of God. We can celebrate the love of God. We can come to appreciate the mercy of God, the presence of God, the holiness of God, the power of God. But this story this morning in Luke chapter two is meant to underscore the humility of God. 
we see the humility of God in our passage this morning, but, but also just to help us understand that this is the, the ongoing understanding of the, the prophets and the apostles as they recognize the significance of Jesus' coming. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. When you think about Christmas, think about the humility of God. God made flesh, God becoming a servant. And this is the word slave, this is doulos. God humbling himself, becoming a slave. Not to be served as he deserved, but coming to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Think about the humility of God in Christmas. Of course, we have talked about the significance of humility from our study in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And Jesus demonstrated the example of one who humbled himself infinitely and then experienced the the exaltation of the Father infinitely, now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Humility is what we see in Christmas. And Jesus becomes the example for those of us who are of faith to recognize that the road to God and the road to glory must come through the pathway of humility. And that's the lesson that we'll look at as we go to our our passage this morning in Luke chapter 2. Please open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. It's on page 857, I think, in your pew Bible if you don't have one. It's really important that you have uh, a look at the Scripture yourself so you can see the power of the word spoken by God through the prophets. I'm going to take this a piece at a time, and I want to just point out through our time this morning the humility of God through the course of this Christmas narrative. First, we'll see humility in human history in verses 1 and 2. Notice, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. We see in this humility and human history. Our story does not begin with once upon a time in a land far, far away. Our story begins with in those days. It's anchored in a specific time frame. It's, it's anchored in history, that Jesus came to the world in history, in space and time. Luke calls attention in these two verses to two more verifiable historical facts, two more figures in history. He's already drawn our attention to one of them already in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. And now he draws attention to Caesar Augustus. 
Now he draws attention to Quirinius, who was governor over Syria. Facts that could be verified in human history. Luke's point is to underscore the fact that Jesus is not a fictional character. Jesus came in a real time and space. Jesus came to real people. These are real events. These are real places, real edicts, a real registration, real traveling from one place to the next. Jesus coming as a baby baby is anchored in history, anchored in fact, so that all that history is actually measured by this one event. We call it A.C. and B.C., Anno Domini and before Christ, that all of human history is measured by the coming of Jesus. Not by the coming of an empire, a world empire, or the coming of a human leader that would come and reign immediately, not seen by the start of time itself, but by the birth of a baby, the birth of his son, Jesus. Jesus is not just a figure Within history, though, Jesus' Jesus's birth defined history. And the coming of this word, Jesus, confirmed himself in time and place. The infinite God who transcends history, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, came to limit and submit himself to space and time allowed himself to be measured by time, to subject himself to human limitations, to become hungry and tired and thirsty, to allow himself to be tempted, to grow physically, to learn, to have to go to the bathroom of all things, to get zits, to sweat, to burp, all the things that, that we think about as being not pretty or attractive, God submitted himself in humility to the human condition. He was fully God and fully man. Marvel at the wonder of the humility of the Savior. To allow himself to grow in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and man. To subject himself to that kind of human limitation. The King of kings and the Lord of lords to come as a baby robing himself in humanity and humility. His coming into history was marked by humility. And it came in a way that God appointed, a God-appointed moment. It was the perfect moment in history. As Galatians chapter four, verses five, four and five says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Adoption as sons. God came near in the form of a baby. His name is Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. His humility, we see, and human history. Next we see in verse three, we see the humility of God and human authority. The humility of Jesus and human authority. Notice this phrase in verse three. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
Three times in these few verses, the gospel writer Luke draws attention to this registration that is happening. We saw it in verse 1. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. We see it again in verse 3. All went to be registered. We'll see it again in verse 5. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Three times throughout this narrative, we're drawn to the fact that there are world rulers who are in charge. There are world rulers who are supposedly or so-called calling the shots. The known world must bow to the authority of the rulers who are actually servants of God. And that's what we see in this passage this morning. That humility in human history are all under divine authority. And Jesus, having come into this time and space, when the fullness of time had come, Jesus entered the world. Let's state the obvious that God could have sent Jesus at any point in human history. But he chooses to send Jesus in this time of the Roman Empire, in the time of census, a mandate that was regulated and pushed out to the world. He sends Jesus to a world empire who are actually God's servants. And God could have moved Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem through any means possible. And they could have lived in the city of David, Bethlehem, but somehow they find their way, they have made their way and and found their home in a place about 90 to 100 miles away from Bethlehem. Why were they in Galilee? Why the town of Nazareth? Why so far from David's city? Well, because God chose to move them through the means of world empires. Because world empires are God's servants. And they are submitting themselves to the human authority so that God can demonstrate that he is sovereign over all human empires. In verses 4 and 5, we find humility and divine prophecy. And there are four ways that that humility shows up in the midst of the prophecy that God has given to his people in ages past and now is making its way, showing up in the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 4 and 5, it says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea. We see here first that he will be the light of the Gentiles, the light to the Gentiles. He went up to this place, or they were from this region of Galilee, and those who were with us last week understand and and recognize that this was the Galilee of the Gentiles. This detail of Jesus' origins are familiar to us at this point, and it is easy for us just to let our our mind's eye walk right through this passage without recognizing the significance. This town of Nazareth was about 100 miles north of Jerusalem, and the, the pictures of the story that we have come to know, but we recognize that Jesus coming from Galilee is significant. It was in the northern part, northern region of Israel, an area that was inhabited by the northern ten tribes of Israel. It was in a place that, that never again had a righteous king after uh, the, the kingdom broke away from Solomon's family. 
or from uh, King Solomon, never again would it have a political center in Israel, nor a religious center. It's claimed to fame that it was the Galilee of the Gentiles. And how Mary and Joseph's family found their way to this place is, is not recorded here in our narrative, but by God's providence, this is the region from which the Savior would come. Isaiah 9, 1 and 2 gives us a window into the purpose for this location. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shown. God had chosen this region, the Galilee of the Gentiles, to help us begin to understand the master plan of God for the world, for the nations, to bring to fruition the promise that he had made many, many years before to Abraham. In you, the nations will be blessed. And that's what we find in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. You don't have this in your, uh, I don't have this on the slides, but just listen as I read. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Light would come in the least likely place and light would shine into the darkness of those who had been ostracized from Israel. Those who had no hope, who had been cut off from God, had been cut off from the commonwealth of Israel, as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says. But light would shine from the servant Jesus, this Messiah figure, and would come from Gentile territory, and it would shine into the darkness of this place, a light would shine from the Gentiles. God would honor his faithful promise to his people. We see as well that he will unite Israel and Judah. Also in, um, in Isaiah chapter nine, verses one and two, I don't wanna move too quickly, but you will see the reference here to this land of Zebulun in Naphtali. Now, maybe if you would uh, work really hard, you could, you could identify several of the tribes of Israel, the, the 10 tribes of Israel, or the 12 tribes of Israel, excuse me. You could probably think about Reuben. You could think about Simeon. You could think about Judah and Benjamin. Maybe you would think about Manasseh and Ephraim. But would you think about Zebulun and Naphtali? Would you think about these forgotten figures written into the text of prophecy, written into the future of God's restoring a people? God is not going to lose these tribes. 
These tribes who were exiled because of sinfulness by Assyria, these tribes who, because of their ungodliness and wickedness, had been sent out into uh, places outside of their homeland, the promised land. But God had promised to restore his people. He had promised to unite his people again. He would do this through his son, Jesus Jeremiah 33, verse 7 also gives us a similar promise. We see, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at the first. Also in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 12, he says, He will raise up a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 18, he says, In those days the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for heritage. God, through his son Jesus, the Messiah, will bring together not only the Gentiles who had been, who had been pushed away because they were not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers and aliens to promise. They were without hope and without God in the world. He would pull them in. The light of the Gentiles would draw them, but God would would mend and restore a broken Israel. Those 10 tribes who who had distanced themselves from Judah, those 10 tribes that because of their ungodliness and wickedness had given themselves over to idolatry, God would restore and God would bring back and make whole his people again. The sovereign God will do this. We also see in verse four, coming back to our text in Luke chapter two, we see that he will come from Bethlehem. He will come from Bethlehem. Notice, and Joseph went up from Galilee to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the, of the house in lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. By God's providence, Joseph and Mary would move to this town to be registered, this town of Bethlehem, according to the promise that God had given through the prophet Micah 700 years before, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall be one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. According to Micah, Bethlehem is scarcely worth mentioning. There were some great cities, there were some great tribes, but Bethlehem was not one of them. The smallness of Bethlehem is what Micah is trying to draw to our attention. To be among the thousands of Judah and yet not to be even mentioned. Bethlehem, not even named among the more than 100 cities allotted to Judah in Joshua chapter 15, verses 21 to 63. And from this unlikely place, Yahweh would come. This humble city, would house the humble Savior. Why does God do things this way? 
Why does God choose humility to lead to salvation? Why does God choose humility to underscore the master plan of God in the earth? Well, why does God do this? He does this the same reason why he did, he chose David to defeat Goliath. The same reason why he chose the lesser son, Isaac, or Jacob, instead of, instead of Esau. The same reason why God chooses a prostitute, a Moabitess woman, to be part of the family tree of Jesus. Jesus does this to underscore the unexpected, to draw attention to the fact that he alone will accomplish his purposes so that, as 1 Corinthians says, no human being might glory in his presence. So why Bethlehem? Well, this is David's city. It's not the glory city of Jerusalem. It's not the center of power and the center of religious Worship, but it is David's city, the city that has been chosen by God for this humble Savior, Jesus. Jesus' birth would be marked by humility. Also in verse 4, we find that he will be born of the house of David. It says, because he was of the house in lineage of David. Now, when we think about David, we think about David, the king. We think about David, who's been given this promise of a future heir, and certainly that is the one we're talking about. But let's not forget who David was before he was anointed king. Let's think about David, who was also the humble shepherd boy. Let's think about David, who is not from the original line of the king. He was not from Saul. He was not from Benjamin. Let's think about David, who was the youngest of eight. David, who was not even a runner-up. David, who was eighth in line. He was not tall in stature like his brothers. He was not strong, but he was ruddy. He was reddish. But this is the lineage from which the Messiah would come. Jesus, the Messiah, would be born of the lineage of David as promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God had promised to fulfill this prophecy to David in allowing his future heir to be king forever. Jesus, who came in humility into Bethlehem, was of the house and lineage of David in fulfillment to this promise spoken a thousand years before. We find that Joseph kept Mary pure until the time that Jesus would be born. They were betrothed, but had not officially married, and Joseph kept her pure until the day after, the day that Jesus would be born. We see that in Matthew chapter one. But he knew, speaking of Joseph, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph would be the recognized, adopted father of Jesus, and thus 
by virtue of his lineage, a descendant of David. Jesus would have the the human right to the throne. Humility would be exalted. We come to verses 6 and 7, and we see the continuation of humility now in the human birth of Jesus himself. Luke chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says this, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Begin to wrap your mind around this, this, this little narrative. I don't know about any of you moms who have given birth to any children, but uh, I, I know that in today's day and age, giving birth in the same room as somebody else is, uh, is, is, is less ordinary as it used to be. Maybe those of you who, uh, from our previous generation, would understand, hey, <laughs> births took place in the company of, of lots of people. And here we find that Mary is giving birth in a very public place. And imagine in a, in a barn, very little privacy was taking place there. A very little comfort was happening there. The, the prickly hay, the, the stench of whatever animals were there. Out in the elements there in the middle of Bethlehem. The irony, the most important event in history is happening under these humble circumstances. God elevates the lowly. And God exalts the humble and rejects the proud. That is the continuing theme of this narrative. Luke gives no description of where the birth actually took place except to say that it was not in an inn. Luke simply says that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. There were no angels. There were no trumpets in this scene. There were no celebrity uh, stars coming to celebrate at this particular time. No voice from heaven. Mary and Joseph begin this journey alone. And as was customary, Mary wrapped her baby in strips of cloths. And the point of this was that Jesus was treated just like any other baby. He wasn't robed with the, with the robes of a king. He wasn't, he wasn't put in a place of, of comfort and ease. He wasn't in a, born in a palace. He was born here and placed in a manger. The word in the Greek is the word for feeding trough. Such troughs could be found anywhere that animals were kept, not only in stables. These were truly humble beginnings for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Why did God choose to be born in this humble way? Why did the Lord of the universe choose to come in humility? So that God could establish from the very beginning that the coming of his son would serve one ultimate purpose to seek and to save the lost. He did not come to be celebrated. He came to save. He did not come to be pampered. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Humble beginnings confirm this singular objective. And then we turn our attention finally 
to humility and divine glory that we see in verses 8 to 21. In the same region, verse 8 says, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Why shepherds, would you say? Why did God choose to to appear to a shepherding community? Why these ragtag individuals out in the middle of the field tending their flocks at night? Well, perhaps it was because of the good shepherd. Uh, A reminder that Jesus would be that good shepherd who who would watch over his flock. Perhaps because uh, the, the predecessor of, of Jesus, David himself, was, was first a shepherd, but also a testimony to the brokenness that Jesus' birth was meant to overcome. You see, shepherds were considered dishonest men in those days, unclean according to the standards of the law. Shepherds were unable to represent themselves and represent others and be considered a witness in a court. Their testimony was considered too deceptive, uh, unable to be trusted. Shepherds were at the bottom of the social ladder. They were uneducated and unskilled. And because shepherds needed to serve seven days a week, they were unable to meet the qualifications that had been set in order for them to worship in the temple. In every way, Jesus came to demonstrate to those who were outcast, to those who were distant, to draw them in, to pull them close, and to give them the opportunity to worship. Jesus came to save sinners. Who would have chosen this bunch but God? Singled out by God's desire to elevate the purpose of Christ of being the lasting peace to a group who needed it most. Verses 9 to 14 underscores the the conditions by which the announcement was given. It says, The angel of the Lord appeared to them, the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with terror. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in a city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Suddenly there's a host of angels. This is an unprecedented moment in in the narrative of the scripture. No other place in all of scripture will you find this concentration of angels on earth celebrating the work of God, the coming Savior who who is to come and be born in Bethlehem. The angels who are constantly in the presence of God marked by incessant worship of God, are now here delivering a message of worship to these shepherds. I bring you good news of great joy, they say. And three times we, we recognize the, 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 
the direction of, of what they've come to do. This glory, the glory of God is about to be known through this person, this baby, Jesus. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Jesus came to bring salvation. He came to mend the brokenness. He came to repair what was broken back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. Jesus came to bring true peace, as announced by the angels. Peace, which is the word shalom, which isn't just the lack of conflict, but is the restoration of wholeness to bring us back to the original condition by which we've been created. And God allows the angels who are part of creation to celebrate in this moment and bringing the good news to the people, to these shepherds. So these shepherds, who are armed now with this message, will make their way to Bethlehem to see this sight for themselves. Verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The shepherds make their search. The only information they know is that somewhere in Bethlehem a baby is born. Somewhere in Bethlehem there is a baby who is wrapped in cloths just like any other baby and now laying in a manger. But these shepherds make haste, it says in verse 16. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. Their hearts who are amplified by this great message of this coming salvation, go with haste to find out who this little baby is. They find the baby lying in a manger, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been, known, had been told to them concerning this child, and all who heard wondered what the shepherds had told them. And then verse 20, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. Humility had led to their glorifying God. And the humility of Jesus would ultimately lead to the glorification of Jesus now, seating, now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus stands as the example of what we read in 1 Peter when we're told to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. God demonstrates through his son Jesus Christ that he is faithful. He, he demonstrates through his, his son Jesus Christ that he is trustworthy. He demonstrates through his son Jesus that the greatest things that we can enjoy come when we as people humble ourselves before a mighty God. This morning, wherever you might be, whatever condition you find your heart, whether you are one who has given yourself to God in faith, or one this morning who is yet to believe that Jesus is the person he says he is, there is a call to us from the scriptures to humble ourselves before him and to enjoy the benefits of fellowship in relationship with Jesus Christ. For those who are of faith, there is a daily 
humbling, a daily believing, because the just will live by faith. It is a perpetual activity for those who are people of faith. As we continue to humble ourselves before God and we continue to believe that what God says about himself is true and we tether our hearts to the promises and the standards that he has given to us in his scripture and we believe that what he has to give to us through his son is better than any of the gifts that we could find on this, in this world. Believe what Jesus says about himself. Humble yourself because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Father, thank you this morning for the promise of your son, for the gift of Jesus. And Lord, I pray, even in these moments, that you would draw our hearts to recognize the wonder of who you are, that we, like the shepherds, would go in haste and search after you, and that having found you, Lord, that we would return, glorifying and praising God for all the things that we have come to know. May that be the expression of our hearts today and throughout this Christmas season. Oh God, that our hearts would be filled up with the wonder of who you are, the one who humbled himself and came in the form of flesh, who took on himself the form of a servant. We praise you, oh God, for humility. Thank you for the example that you have set before us. And God, I pray, help us to follow after the example of Christ and to humble ourselves before a mighty and holy Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The narrative continues in Luke chapter one. We find Mary in verse 19. It says, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I wonder what Mary was thinking about. The word treasured is to persevere, to keep in a safe condition, to keep in mind. To ponder is to think about seriously, to reflect. Mary is caught up with the wonder of all that is happening to her. She's gripped with worship in her heart, recognizing the work of God in coming as Savior. Savior has come. This morning we have an opportunity and to, to trans, transition to remembrance, to ponder, to do what Mary did in thinking and pondering and considering and treasuring all that God has accomplished for us through the birth of his son, Jesus. To go back where we started in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 and 7, it says, Again, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This morning, as we consider the body of Christ, we consider Emmanuel, the word of God that came and dwelt among us, we were reminded of humility. Reminded of the work of Christ in becoming a man. Humbling himself. Limiting himself to space and time 
to human limitation so that he could eventually not only serve, but that he could, he could be a redemption. He could be a savior for the world. He could die on the cross and offer himself to us as savior. This morning, as we think about the humility of Christ in becoming a man, let's remember him as we take together. But the, humili- the humility of Christ doesn't end at the manger. The humility of Christ continues throughout his ministry. And we continue to see the humility of Christ as Philippians chapter 2 picks up at verse 8 and carries this theme through. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And it goes on, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the pathway to glory leads through the road of humility. And Jesus modeled humility by submitting himself to become a servant, a slave, to become a human, fully human and fully God. And then ultimately to bow and bend his will to the will of the Father, which took him to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was his death, his brokenness, the broken body and the spilled blood that has made a way. It has made a way for us to enjoy relationship with God. That we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That through his blood, the spilling of his life, he offers life. Life that is free, life that is abundant, life that is yours through faith in Christ. Have you come to the place of enjoying and experiencing the life of God through faith in Christ? This morning, like Mary, we remember, we ponder, we treasure the work of Christ in humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember that by remembering his blood that was poured out. Let's remember him this morning as we drink together. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus, whose body was broken, whose blood was spilled for us. We pray again this this holiday season, you would be preeminent in our attention and that we would praise you as you deserve, King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen.